It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Our guest today is CEO Chris Stefanski. Chris is president and chief executive officer of Columbia Distributing in Seattle, Washington, one of the nation's largest beverage distributing companies. Chris has spent the last 20 years in the wine and beer industry, where he has held senior leadership roles in sales, marketing, and strategy. Chris is a graduate from Plymouth State University in New Hampshire with a Bachelor of Science degree in economics. Chris Stefanski, welcome into the corner office. Thanks so much for having me. Wonderful to have you here. And uh, as we've done so often with other CEOs before you, uh, we like to kind of start about your early years, you know, what they were like, where you grew up and what kind of influences were important during that time of period. Yeah. So I grew up in, uh, in central Connecticut, a town called Southington, um, a little bit outside of, uh, outside of Hartford. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I grew up of, of, you know, fairly modest means. I actually lived in, uh, grew up in a small condominium complex, uh, my parents were divorced when I was uh, about five years old, so my mother uh, primarily raised us. I have two two older brothers and a and a younger sister, and my mom was a nurse a nurse working uh, third shift, and so uh, so yeah, it was an interesting kind of not not your typical kind of day in the life. My uh, older brothers kind of watched the the younger siblings, and um, you know we uh, my mom worked real hard to kind of give us what we had, but you know at the end of the day we really had everything we we could ever need and. Lots of hand-me-downs, but when you're when you're that age, you don't even realize they're hand-me-downs. <laughs> Absolutely. So you were the youngest of three, were you? Uh, I was actually, I'm actually the, the youngest boy, and I have a younger sister as and well. And a younger sister, great. And so dad didn't play a big part in your life? Was there weekends with him or any any contact with him growing up? Yeah, there was contact. And, and dad did play a role in our lives. He was on the West Coast in California, and being in Connecticut, it was a bit of a travel challenge, but uh, but we definitely got to see him, uh, you know, a few times a year. Awesome. So mom worked full time, it sounds like, as well as uh, raising uh, the children. That's a big job. Mom was amazing, worked full time, um, you know, did, did a great job kind of uh, not only, you know, teaching us, but, uh, you know, she sacrificed a lot for, for all four of her kids. And she, she's a really amazing woman. What kind of lessons did you learn from her in those early days, you know, to going back to the single digits, elementary school and so forth? What do you remember about, you know, mom's, uh, mom's work with you, raising you? Yeah, that's a great question. I got to tell you, I, I learned a lot from my mom and, and things that I probably appreciated much more as an adult than I did than I did as a, as a child. My mom was, uh, you know, always really open to kind of challenging us to, to get out and do things. My mom was one who was 
never apologetic for what we didn't have, was never felt sorry for herself or, or, or for us. And, um, you know, the thing I got from my mom probably the most was just an unbelievable uh, compassionate side to understanding that for whatever we didn't have, a lot of other people had it worse. And so we really got this great level of empathy and, and I think understanding. And, and I think even my siblings who have all had a, a large amount of success in, in their lives, you know, I think the way that we've learned to connect with people uh, in, in a really kind of personal way, a lot of that came from, from our mom. Awesome. And, and older brothers, what was the age gap between you and them? So my oldest brother is five years older than me, okay. and my uh, middle brother is uh, two years older than me, and my younger sister is five years younger. So wow. kind of yeah. 10 years between the younger sister and the oldest brother. Right, right. Any lessons from those older brothers in terms of some of the things that you either observed or, you know, was uh, delegated by mom, perhaps, to some of those older siblings? Yeah, you know, just based on the nature, you know, again, of how we grew up, we, we were all very active in sports. Uh, you know, we had a very busy uh, lifestyle outside, outside of school and based on mom's kind of sleeping during the day and working at night. I was very, very, you know, close to my brothers. My oldest brother was, you know, at a very young age, put in a bit of a position that, you know, he, he certain days was the disciplinarian. Other days, you know, making sure that, you know, we got to where we needed to be. He would, he would babysit us a lot. And again, you know, I think when I was younger, I didn't have a, a huge appreciation for the relationship and, and really the position that he was put in uh, to have to kind of help raise, help my mom raise us all. But, um, you know, he, he now is my best friend and, and we have such a special relationship because of that. Yeah, kind of like a junior dad in some ways, right? He had to step in in those areas. That that's exactly right, and 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 he did it, and I'm sure he, it was you know took a, a bit of his childhood away, and like I said, I think you you learn to appreciate that stuff as you get older and have kids of your own. So mom worked that late shift, so you kids had to get up in the morning and fix your own breakfast, I guess, and get your way off to school. We did. Usually mom was was coming home as uh, as you know. Usually we saw her before we went to school, so mom would come home and make sure we were awake and got breakfast and send <laughs> oh, us to school, nice. and she'd sleep the rest of the day and come home, make us dinner, and, and head off to uh, to work again. Were you a good student? You know, I actually, I, I wasn't, Brant. You know, it's interesting. Um, <laughs> you know, okay. <laughs> I, I think I think this is maybe where I differ than a lot of other CEOs and corner offices. But, you know, I, uh, you know, uh, my brothers and, and I, you know, we all had fairly significant learning disabilities. You know, we had a tough time learning to read. Um, we had a tough time kind of comprehending and understanding, uh, you know, kind of different, whether it be mathematical problems or other things. And, and for me personally, at least, especially when I was younger, I had a really tough time relating uh, to school and trying to understand how do I take academics and, and bring that into what I kind of would define as the real world. I was very inquisitive. I asked lots of questions. I, I love to kind of understand how things worked. And, and for me, there was always a little bit of a gap of, you know, I'm spending time working on a lot of these things that I, I had trouble actually understanding how they were going to relate to what I did. And certainly, again, as I got older, I appreciated that more. But early years for me, and even in high school, I wasn't even sure early on in high school I wanted to go to college, and, yeah, and, it, was and uh, it was a big yeah. challenge. And the, the irony for me is, once I got into college, um, I pretty much had straight A's through college. Like college to me was engaging. I learned, I understood how you actually take, you know, kind of academics and and really bring it into defining what you want to do, both career wise and and a lot of personal maturing for me happened in college. That quite honestly, I didn't have nearly that engagement in uh, in junior high and high school. 
Let's rewind a little bit because I like to go a little deeper there. Was it dyslexia or ADHD? Had you been diagnosed with something or what was the learning assembly? So it was 88, 80, what, what, what we now know is ADHD. Yeah, uh, at back, that time. Back then, yeah, back then it wasn't quite such <laughs> it a... It was just hyperactive yeah, kids. <laughs> that, that's, that's, fun, that's funny you say that, Brett, because that's exactly right. It's funny. As I now say, they didn't have the cool title for it. But uh, <laughs> um, you know, but when I was really young, it was, hey, you know, go outside and run five laps and right, burn, right, burn off some energy and, down, right, right, right. And, and come back. So certainly, yeah, it was ADHD. I I had a tough time focusing and concentrating and, 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 uh, you know, going through a, a mediocre public school system in the one that we did, they didn't, they didn't really know how to deal with that. And, and, and you were challenged too, that. probably, you know, typically a- ADHD right. tend to be on the higher end of the intelligence scale. And therefore, you know, you kind of get bored with things, whereas probably college seemed to be more challenging for you, right? And you're more interested in it. It was. It was more interesting. You got to pick your classes. Um, you know, I was an economics major, and I, I had a. I just had so much energy for understanding how the world worked. And so, yeah. So for me, I was a little bit of a late bloomer when it came to academics. Well, going back to to, to junior high, high school, you'd mentioned sports. What kind of sports did you pursue? So early on, I I, I played a lot of different sports. Um, I played you know soccer, kind of baseball. A um, little bit of basketball, but it really wasn't until I was about 14 or 15 I got into lacrosse in a, uh, in, in a really, you know, kind of big way. I actually stopped, stopped playing baseball and kind of traded that in for a lacrosse stick. And I also skied competitively. So I did freestyle skiing um, all the way through high school and college. And again, with, with kind of our schedule and our mom, you know, not necessarily being there every day, it was, it was great to have a lot of things to keep us busy. So, so sports played a hugely important role in our lives. Lacrosse is so much more of an East Coast uh, sport than West Coast, although it seems to be growing more and more in, in interest. Uh, a good friend of mine who actually also grew up in Connecticut has his son playing lacrosse now on the West Coast. But I don't think that was even offered in West Coast schools, at least not when I was there. But uh, was that a pretty popular sport or was that still fairly new when you were growing up? No, actually, it really was 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 very popular when I was growing up, and a lot of you know a lot of kids kind of start in baseball, and they make the decision to either you know stay in baseball or go to lacrosse based on both being spring sports. But you're right, in the West, it was almost non-existent. The last few years, it's it's changed dramatically. I mean, California, uh, the Pac Northwest are are all getting really big into having uh, you know kind of really great high school lacrosse programs. So sports was big. Anything else? Music, theater? Did you pursue, you know, student government positions? Tell us any, anything more about uh, what might have been going on extracurricular. Yeah. So the other big thing I was in was um, was theater. So I loved I loved doing plays. Um, I, I I couldn't much sing, and that's still true today. Even though I I always gave it my <laughs> best effort, but uh, but yeah, I I really loved theater. I loved you know from an early age. One of the things I knew that I would be fairly good at would be being up in front of people. Um, I mm. never had an issue. I never got nervous. Um, and, and also I had a pretty good knack for kind of learning lines and, and the irony of some of my learning disabilities were that, you know, I ended up, as I got older, I, I realized I was really good at math. I could understand, you know, kind of financial equations and problems and also, you know, memorizing and learning lines and numbers. So, you know, you know, learning, uh, you know, plays and, and reading lines and doing scenes always really came easy to me. And, and, uh, it was something I really enjoyed and I did it through kind of these community summer programs, actually all the way up until I went to college. Yeah. So you mentioned theater. Uh, were you involved in dramatics in high school? Did you do kind of the two or three times a year play? Yeah, I was actually. So kind of this, the summer program led me into getting into plays all the way through high school, kind of did that all the way through my my senior year. And at one point, I think when I finally decided that uh, college was the right path for me, I, I actually thought about maybe majoring in, in drama and getting into acting. And and uh, it kind of took a summer to change my mind on that. I'm probably glad I did, because as you know, that's uh, not an, an easy industry to break through. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, but a good one, of course, to develop and practice public speaking skills 
and being up in front of others, which you've obviously done a lot of in your uh, in your career. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. What about entrepreneurial things that you were younger? You know, did you have the paper route? Did you do the sales at Christmas time or, you know, the car washes? But tell us a little bit about that part of your uh, growing up. Yeah, I did. It was interesting. I, uh, so I did have, I did have a paper route and, you know, back in the days when you were still ripping off the little collection tickets and, and, <laughs> and handing going them. door to door to collect it. Yeah. Right? It's amazing how uh, technology has made that job a lot easier at 5 a.m. Than, <laughs> than, 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 than it used to be. And uh, yeah. And actually the other thing I did, I, I, uh, I ended up going to work for a company called Vector Marketing. And I, I think at this point, I was probably a sophomore. Uh, I think I was 16 years old. And, and it was just a part-time job, but I was selling Cutco knives. So if, oh, if uh, right. door-to-door. Door-to-door. And really, and, and really <laughs> the way you. They, they lure you in is, you, you know, you, you kind of present to your family and then you get recommendations. And, you know, as a, as a 16-year-old, you have a lot of friends and family who feel bad. So they give you their neighbors. And, and it's funny, I ended up being really good at it. I won Employee of the Month, I think, two or three times. And... And there was people who, you know, actually made made careers out of out of doing that. But I got to tell you, it really taught me a lot around perseverance. And you know, when one door closes, you got to go knock on the next. And and as you know, with a lot of things, it becomes just a a game of playing the odds, right? And if you knock on so many doors, eventually you're going to get people to listen to you. And you were a good solid. Uh closed-toed shoes just in case, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. That was part of the issues later on as people would call me and tell me they cut themselves. I, and it's funny, I still have Cutco knives in my own house today, <laughs> and I still believe they're one of the greatest uh, greatest knife collections ever. Yeah. That's great. Well, you talked about, you know, maybe not going to college at some point. Um, what, who, you know, kind of influenced you differently? Did mom have something to say about that? Were there other people, you know, your dad? What, what kind of maybe changed your mind about college being a good idea? Yeah, I mean, I, that, that influence certainly came from my dad. My dad um, uh, went, went to college, uh, got, his, got his bachelor's degree, ended up going all the way through to get his doctorate, uh, his PhD. So, so education importance really came from my dad. And, and I think it was, for me, kind of my senior year in high school. And, and you know, certainly, you know, my dad had lot, spent lots of time trying to kind of give us the, the message of what do you want to do with your life? And, and, and college is certainly an avenue to open up a lot of options. And, and honestly, part of it for me was, you know, I think the, the, the final decision for me was around the fact that I wasn't sure at 18 I was ready to take on the world yet in a way that I thought would make a lot of sense. So I thought that, you know, going to college and, and working my way through school, I bartended my way through college was, was, was a way to, for me to kind of grow and mature. And, and honestly, at 18, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. How many 18 year olds do? Right. That's right. <laughs> so did you, was, was kind of summers with dad? Is that how it worked out? Spent a couple of weeks there yep, exactly. uh, during the we, summer months? Yeah, yeah. We'd spend two weeks with dad in the summer and usually we'd spend a week, a week over Christmas. And then depending on his schedule for work, he'd make it back to the East coast a couple times a year. Yeah. Nice. Great. So uh, making decisions about college, uh, you know, what did you decide to study and you know, what were kind of some of the, the thinkings, you know, around that and getting your, your, your degree in economics? Yeah. You know, the challenge I I think with not being uh, a great student and and not focusing enough on on uh, on school and high school, which I one of my regrets is I wish I spent a bit more time uh, in high school on school was the fact that you have limited options, right? So for me, part of it was you know where could I go that that. Uh, was a good enough school that I could get what I would you know deem a good education. The other thing that was really important to me was based on kind of my personality and, and my energy level, I wanted to make sure I could also continue athletics. So I picked a school, Plymouth State. Uh, at the time, it was Plymouth State College. Now it's Plymouth State University. 
up in the middle of the White Mountains in New Hampshire. And for me, it was a couple of things. One, it was a, it was a really it was a small school which I kind of needed. I thought I needed a little bit of extra time and attention and help with the academic side. So, you know, unlike a lot of major universities, class sizes were reasonable. You could have a relationship uh, with your professors, which I thought was important. And then the other piece for me was I was able to play. I got recruited from their lacrosse team. I I was uh, I, I played all four years at Plymouth State, and also I continued to ski competitively because there was great ski areas all within about uh, 20 miles of the school and I ended yeah, up the being the, and yeah, everything else yeah, there. I ended yeah. up being the captain of my lacrosse team both my junior and senior year. Awesome, awesome. Were you recruited there or were you a walk-on? I actually ended up being a walk-on. So mm-hmm. I, uh, I, again, trying to figure out what school I was going to be able to get into. I spent more time on making sure I could get in. And then, yeah, I went and met the met the, lac- the lacrosse coach. And I remember he said to me, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll look at you. And it was a Division three school, so not that they were offering scholarships. But, yeah, I came out for, for one day of practice. And fortunately, I made the team and worked hard. And, uh, and, and it was fun. And it really played a, a really important role in my life at that point. You said earlier that, you know, you kind of kicked in in college and, and became a better student. What, what was what kind of clicked for you there? You know, I, I think the fact that, you know, part of it, I think, was maturity. I think I was, uh, I, you know, being a bit older and having an understanding of kind of what I wanted to do, uh, it, it, at least knowing that I wanted to be out in the in, and have a career, even though I didn't know what it was at that point. So part of it for me was I, I really feel like that uh, the interest level in the classes that I took, I loved economics because I loved to try to understand how money flowed, how the world worked, the influence of kind of international business and international policies and, and their relationship back to the U.S. So there's a lot of things that really interest me. And, and again, I was fortunate enough to have a curriculum that I got to build uh, with things that I just thought really made sense. And, and you know, fortunately, um, I, and I, I was really lucky. I had some great professors. And again, being in classrooms of 20 or 30 students in college is, is not the norm. Um, but being able to connect with, with your professors and being able to ask inquisitive questions and spend time after after class, you know, really following up on things for me, they, they engaged me in a way that I, I think allowed me to kind of prosper in that environment. Yeah, those smaller liberal arts colleges really have that ability, don't they? They really do. Yeah, yeah and it worked yeah. out. And I'm not sure I would have done nearly as well if, if I was in a bigger university. Right, right. Kind of get lost in the flow. Right. So um, you worked for some great companies. We've heard about that through your bio. What, what was your first job right out of college? So first job out of college, actually, I worked for a company that at the time was called uh, South Beach Beverage Company, and uh, it's now known today as Sobe. So you okay. may have seen it. Oh, it's, yeah. the, it's the drink sure. with the lizard on it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yep. no, know it well. Great yep. product. So I actually, ironically, I actually got recruited to go work for for Gala Wine. One of the things uh, I did in summer jobs uh, during college was I was a, a merchandiser for a beer distributor in California. And and uh, I, ironically, I'm obviously in that industry today, but really I would go and I would straighten out shelves and dust and, and build displays. And so when I graduated college, I, it was it was something I was comfortable and familiar with. I reached out to a, to a few employers in the beverage industry. Gala Wine I had a great uh, selling program uh, and, and sales training program that was kind of revered and still is today in the industry. I was able to get a job with them, but the job didn't start for five months. So I, I had a gap between the time I graduated college before what I what I thought was kind of my first career job. And I had an opportunity to work for, for South Beach Beverage Company, and I literally had a van. I had cases of product in the back. Uh, <laughs> it, I was, I think, the third employee, and they said, go to every deli and, and gas station you can, walk in, we have nothing to give you other than you just got to sell the product. And literally, wow. I went out every day and banged on doors, tried to, <laughs> tried to get the, the, the gas stations to bring in the product. I would set the shelves. I would do samplings. I was on the radio promoting it. It, it was just a perfect job for, for somebody who has a lot of ambition and, uh, and, and not a lot of guidance, 
but that was actually good at the time because when I went well, to- Well, you had your knife sales experience, right? I, I so did. you knew how to knock on doors. <laughs> I did. It was the same. It, it was. And then when I went to Gallo, it was very different. Very formal training. Uh, really an incredible, incredibly run organization. Some of the best training. You worked training. for Gallo on the East Coast, right? Because I know they're Modesto-based. I did. Yeah. I worked I worked for them in Connecticut. One of their distributing you know, operations. Kind Correct. Of. Yep. But uh, tell us about the first time or what do you remember about uh, when you first started managing people? You know, I first started managing people at, at Gallo, and, and it was only about uh, two years after I started. And kind of the way their their management training program works is you get to do a lot of different things, and they put you in a lot of different jobs. And I, I think the biggest challenge for me, I think I was about 24 years old, uh, two years out of college when I first started managing my team. And at that point, you know, the, the team was seasoned sales veterans. I mean, some, <laughs> some of these folks you know, were working at our distributor for 15 or 20 years. And and I was I was nervous. I'm sure it came across that way. And uh, you know, and I learned a lot. And and the thing I probably learned the most was it was amazing um, how much you know learning is really kind of a two way flow of information. And I think something that stuck with me my entire career is you know you can learn as much from the people who work for you. Um, you know, as much as you can teach them, they can teach you. And I think you just have to be open-minded uh, and really learn how to kind of flex your style. And one of the things I realized early on is, you know, people need to be managed very differently and, and, and different things motivate different people. And I think if you can understand that early on and, and, and know that you can't kind of have a le- one, you know, one specific leadership style. approach. Exactly. Yeah. And I learned that yeah. early on. And a lot of it was How some really tough that? lessons. Because, you know, I'll tell you, for someone in his mid-20s, that's a really important lesson. I, I think it took me another decade before I came across that one. So was that something you learned by, you know, observing others? Was it a boss or a mentor? How did you pick that up? I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, I, you know, I, I think I always tell people, you know, I think you're, you're very fortunate in your career and most people work for people they would deem as great bosses, some maybe not so great. But I think you equally learn really important lessons. And part of it was, you know, we, we had a really tight-knit group at, at the Gala distributor I worked at. We had a really good boss, very open, um, you know, always ask great questions. We, we learned a lot. And, and a lot of it was a little bit of tough love for my team that I, that I inherited. I mean, they had no issue telling me like it was, you know, they, call, <laughs> they, they called me kid, you know, yeah, you're just right. a kid. These guys are 20, 30 years yeah. older than you for the most part. <laughs> exactly right. And, you know, one of the things I did is I learned over time that I had to gain their respect. I had to get credibility. I had to work hard because if I didn't do any of that, I could never really connect with them. So a little bit was tough love, but um, I, I would never take it back. And, and, and they were just really good individuals that I owe a lot to. What were some of your other kind of early leadership lessons? So, um, you know, the, the other probably earlier one, and this one I would say would probably be when I first kind of got into more of a regional role, managing a larger team, kind of late 20s, early 30s for me, um, was around, you know, always trying to be humble and, and, and modest. And, and I really learned some tough lessons at, at those times around how do you hire a team of people that, that make you better and the company better? And I think, you know, Brant, some of the challenges I see, and I even see it today with, with senior leaders is, you know, everybody to a certain degree, you know, has confidence and, 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 and ego always plays a role. And I think as you get in, in bigger roles and one of the things I learned at those times for me was how do you surround yourself with people who are um, not of similar thought and diversity of thinking? And honestly, how do you hire people who are better than you and smarter than you and people that add a, a, a complete different value? And I think a lot of times when you when you have that mentality, you know, people get intimidated, like, you know, do I want to be stood up? Is somebody going to look smarter than me? And and I think, you know, you know, as I kind of moved through my career, I appreciated that so much more. And, and you know, people always ask me, 
me today, you know, kind of how'd you get to where you are today? And it's because I've, I've had unbelievable people working for me and, uh, and, and, and they've made me better. And in turn, I've, I was able to help them and promote them. And I think for me, those are, those are the really important lessons. And there's a, there's a word that's never really used a lot in, in leadership style. And for me, it's vulnerability. Um, because a lot of times, you know, people see that as a sign of weakness and vulnerability to me is such an important leadership capability that's usually never, never, uh, you know, discussed very often because when you're vulnerable, it allows you to let people in and see a different side of you. And, and, you know, really leadership is all about connecting with people, right? It's about creating a vision and yes, there's strategy and you want to deliver great results, but at the end of the day, in engaging an organization and the employees and making a, a great work environment is really, I believe, what, what drives a lot of success. And, and those are the things I learned really early on. Chris, what about some of the past bosses you've had? What are some of the lessons you've learned from them over the years? Yeah, I think a lot, a lot of that, you know, for me was around kind of, you know, the, the leadership, flexing leadership style I talked about earlier. You know, I've, I've worked for people who would micromanage, you know, every detail. I've worked, <laughs> I've worked for people who said, you know, here, here you go. Here's what you need to do and, you know, talk to me in three months. Um, and, and I, so I really learned, and I, like I said earlier, I learned as much from what I would say bosses, maybe that didn't fit my style. Cause you know what? They might not have been a bad boss. They might've just been bad for me. And, 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 and so that was really important for, for me to understand my style. And, and again, I think I spent a lot of time trying to understand the needs of, of our team and the people who have worked for me in the past to make sure that I'm giving them what they need and everybody needs, you know, needs different things. So I learned a lot of that from, I mean, I've had incredible bosses, but what I learned over time is they were incredible because they knew how to manage me. Somebody else may not have thought they were nearly as incredible. And so, so it just kind of reinforced the fact that, you know, you need to find a creative way to get the best out of your team. And, and to your point, it's not always a cookie cutter approach. How would you say your leadership style has evolved over time, you know, from your time in those early days in sales positions to, you know, now in your corner office? Yeah, you know, I, I think for me, the most was probably in going back to a little bit about, you know, ego. I think early on in my career, especially as you're, as you're, you know, you're younger in your career and you start to get into bigger, more senior roles, especially at a younger age. Right. I think for me, I, what's changed the most is back then, I always wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, I kind of came in overly prepared in the meeting. I wanted to make sure everybody knew that I had everything figured out. I, I asked a lot fewer questions. I didn't listen nearly as well. And quite honestly, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that, you know, uh, I, I always I thought I had to prove why I was in the room. I always felt like every every time I was in a meeting, I had to show everybody in the room that I was supposed to be there and that I worked hard to get there. And so you know, and I think we and got, then you learned about vulnerability. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> that's that's exactly right. And and I, I got to tell you that there is an amazing power uh, in a leadership role when you're in a room and you look at your team and you say the words I don't know. And, and as simple as it sounds, it, it's, it's powerful, right? Because, you know, yes, you need to, again, set really clear vision and strategy as a leader. And you want to have confidence. You want people to have confidence that you know how to run a business. But at the same time, I think there's this, uh, you know, incredible feeling of relief with your team when sometimes you go, you know what? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that, but you know what? I, I, we have a group of really smart people and we can figure that out. And, and so the power, I think, now for me of, coming into a, into a meeting and really listening and engaging my team. And, and I mean, I, I take such a sense of pride in watching people grow and develop and flourish. Um, and, and it's amazing, you know, and as you give coaching through your career to your team and take coaching and you see that stuff play out and you see people develop into, into, into bigger roles. And for me, that, that's, that's the most I get out of any job that I've had. You know, Chris, also, I think uh, that whole I don't know also gives an opportunity for people to step up. 
right? Because you step back and then it's their turn to say, okay, well, you know, I do have a solution for this, or I do have an idea. And they feel probably a little more encouraged um, and maybe uh, a little less uh, frightened themselves to talk about their ideas. I, I think you're absolutely right, Brad. And, and it gives people a chance that, uh, you know, maybe they haven't had in the past. And you're right. And it showcases talent. And also, again, you know, nine times out of 10, you're going to come out with a lot better idea with more input than what you had going in. How many times you've been in situations where you've had a completely different, you know, dis, a, a complete different idea than what your boss said, but your boss makes the point, what are you going to do? You know, are you going to stand up and say, no, I don't agree with you? <laughs> you know, that's not perhaps a good career strategy in most organizations. But if the boss says, I don't know, it really does open up that door. That's a, that's a tremendous quality. Yeah. Fantastic tool. What, when do you decide to, if you do at all, because uh, we talked about micromanagement a bit, when do you decide to micromanage and, and when it's, you know, when do you time to say, okay, it's okay to stay out of the sandbox? Do you have those moments with the people that work directly for you? I do, you know, and I, and I think, again, I, you know, even knowing your team dynamics, so certainly you need to know individual leadership styles with direct reports one-on-one. -on -one. I also think there's a similar dynamic with your team. And I think understanding what your team is capable of is, is hugely important, right? How much can you throw at them? How aggressive can you attack different you know, strategic initiatives that you may have? When, when are the right times to push your team and the organization to take really big risks? So I think, I think understanding what your team's capable of, and I think with my style, what I typically find is early on on big strategic initiatives or major projects or venturing into new revenue streams or categories or segments, maybe we haven't played it in the past, I find, I think micromanaging or at least being a lot more involved up front works really well for, for the team that, that we have in place today at my company. And, and I think understanding that and, and giving really clear guidance and direction and making sure everybody's engaged for me works really well with this team. And, and, but really quickly, as soon as we all kind of align around, you know, what next steps are for me, then I back up and you got to let people go and have autonomy and, and really kind of take ownership of, of what you're doing. And so typically that's kind of worked really well for me, you know, with most teams that I've managed, but you got to kind of understand the team dynamic. I, again, I don't think you can really have kind of one approach. Yeah. What goes on there, Chris? Is it a kind of a timing issue for you where you get more trust and respect with those people and, you know, you get out of their sandbox, so to speak? Or is it, you know, kind of like, all right, well, it's 90 days, you know, out of the nest, go fly. <laughs> How do you kind of make that decision to, to get out of the sandbox, so to speak, or get out of their lane? Yeah, again, I, I think it's a little bit of both. I, you know, trust, you know, and again, another word that's not used a ton. I mean, everybody has it on their wall in a vision statement or, or on, a, on core values, but trust is hugely important. And, and I think, you know, I think understanding, again, capabilities of people, and you're right, when you when you provide autonomy, you tell somebody to kind of go run, it really shows a high level of trust. And for me, that's really important. I think there is times when you need to kind of push people in a direction to go take on a bit more to help build their confidence. Um, but but again, I think depending on uh, you know the the, the project or, or where you're at, I, I think you need to I think you need to offer trust a lot earlier uh, than maybe you know than maybe, you know, kind of typically in a personal relationship where it takes a long time. I mean, for, for, for me, showing people that you have trust in them, even if it's early on, I think allows them to excel. And again, it builds confidence, right? And a lot of things in business and work is, do, are you comfortable in your ability to deliver? And if everybody around you, you know, is telling you, you know, and, and giving you confidence in that, I think it makes it a lot easier. It comes back to trust and credibility. Makes good sense. So you don't mind going a little early on someone knowing that, uh, you know, they're going to have to flap their wings. Right. And then, you know, right. And then you, you measure their success and you reinforce and hopefully you're celebrating great results that they're bringing back in it. And that just kind of amplifies even down to, to the people they're managing. 
you've worked with some great companies, you know, Heineken, Gallo, Pabst. Um, they've all had pretty unique cultures too. Heineken with its Dutch tradition, Pabst, of course, very American. Gallo, very heavily influenced by those two Italian brothers, but <laughs> came yes, over sir. and got things started. Yes, sir. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts about building a company culture, particularly where you are today? Yeah, you know, I, I think culture is probably the most important uh, thing in in the success of an organization. I know in our in our company now, we talk about really two things. We talk about the fact that we have two of the greatest assets, and it's people and brands. And 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 in the nature of the industry we're in, that's what matters the most. But you know, company culture is hugely important. And I think one of the things I've learned over time, and I think early on in my career, I. I thought if you set the right vision and you told people what you wanted the company to look like and you tried to force kind of cultural norms down from an executive level or an exec team, I thought that was kind of the right way to do it. And I, I got to tell you, Brent, what I've learned over time is culture takes on you know, a life of its own, right? And it's really driving the behaviors of the organization that you believe will ultimately you know, allow you to be successful. And I think one of the things We've done a really good job of here at Columbia, and, and we are an organization that's spread out over three states, um, so it's not like you can run into everybody and impact that every day, but one of the things we really try to do is, is, is take ownership of kind of what we call our subcultures, whether you're in California or our Oregon business or Washington, there's all these great cultural norms, and what we decided to do is look at it a little bit different to say, how do we take the best of what our organization has so kind of how do you take these subcultures and actually mold that up to create an overall company culture? And we, we spend a lot of time talking about this. We have a culture committee made up of all uh, different geographies and levels in our organization. We actually have a full-time culture manager who really kind of plays liaison to make sure that, you know, we have 3,500 employees. And how do you make sure that every employee feels like they're being heard when, you know, you only have a limited small executive team that can't be everywhere all the time. But, but culture to me is just hugely important important in the success of an organization and making a, a great work environment. Does that culture manager report into you or into your head of the, the people or the HR organization? Yeah, actually, yep, it reports into our head of HR. And so she's very connected in and, and uh, she actually used to work for me. So she also has a, a, a I have a great relationship. She al always knows that uh, I am available whenever, uh, whenever she needs me. It would seem to be that would be important. I'm glad to hear that because, you know, it is in our practice as well. One of the things we focus on is in really ensuring we understand that culture of the company before we begin on a project. And uh, it's typically the CEO or the board or the founder, or the owner, you know, that uh, really does kind of set the stage for that. And uh, it's good to hear that you've got that direct connections. What, what's unusual? If, if we were to ask her today, what would she say was unusual about your culture at Columbia? I think what she would say is is our ability to connect, as I said earlier, one of our biggest challenges is just geographically, we're so spread out amongst three states. We have 13 different branches and offices. And I think what she would say is unique is we have found really creative ways through social media, WebExes, uh, ways that we engage the awards ceremonies and employee engagement that actually this company feels like it's really connected. So for being a large organization, one of the things we pride ourselves on is we're nimble, we can move fairly quick in the marketplace, and I feel like employees feel like they're connected to something bigger, even though if they're not in kind of quote unquote headquarters. Yeah, that's awesome. What do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in? Gosh, you've got 3,600 employees. I know you probably don't get involved in a lot of the hiring, but you know what are some of the core principles that uh, are important at Columbia? I mean, honestly, for me, the two things, and I, and I think this is true if you're hiring an entry-level position or even a, a senior leadership position, the two things that are most important for me, Brian, are work ethic and attitude. Um, I, I just, I think those things are so hugely important. And again, you don't need a, a PhD to have those two things, right? And certainly, you know, education and, and, and kind of experience also plays an important role. But for us, 
Those are two things that are critically important because it also is a cultural identifier for us, meaning we want to make sure that people are going to come in and two things. One is, do they fit into the culture we already have? And two is, can they actually add and make our culture better, right? We don't want to force fit. We want, we want people to bring new ideas. And again, our cult, culture's living and breathing and always evolving. But for me, if I were to just, in a nutshell, work ethic and attitude are so hugely important because it drives culture. And those are things that we spend a lot of time with any candidate we bring in talking about. Attitude's pretty straightforward. Double-click a little bit for us on work ethic. What do you mean by that? I think just people's work style, right? And, and ultimately understanding how they work. And, and again, uh, you talk about a lot of changes you know, in technology and, and the way that people work today, obviously, with technology changes and social media and whether you need to actually be at an office space. So the work ethic for me is not necessarily how hard somebody works. It's much more around understanding their work style. Again, it goes back to culture, right? So if, if somebody feels like, you know, they can work from home in a given job, is that what they would prefer? You know, can they work in an environment where there's offices and cubes? And, and so I think part of this is really mirroring up. How do you get the most out of somebody when they're, when they're here at, at their job? And, and how do you set it up? You know, and it could be as simple things. It's funny for us. We just employed a, a dog policy, a pet policy that, you know, once a month we let employees bring their dog. But it's like, but it's little things that maybe at the end of the day, you know, you, you think may not add a lot of value. But for us, it's work environment is hugely important. So work ethic for us is really around how do we engage you in a way and put you in an environment that gets the most out of you and where you're also the most satisfied. How do you interview and hire, Chris? Personally. Yep. Well, we do. Um, and, and typically I'm involved mo- with all of our exec level and our senior leadership team hiring. We, we use a panel interview process brand. And yep. So we, we kind of bring in a group of people. And um, I actually started that uh, a long time ago at Heineken. And one, one of the reasons we do that and one of the benefits of that is I think, you know, some, sometimes people can have a really good interview with one person and a really lousy interview with one with another person. And so we used to kind of bring everybody in, in, in a room after individual interviews and everybody would have such different differing opinions. So we, we found the best way. And so everybody kind of hears the, the same piece. So what we ask to do, even in our senior leadership roles, is we do a panel interview. We also ask the individual to come in and make a presentation. Um, and, and so obviously- three, three to five on the panel? Who, who's to, how many people do you typically have? When- we typically have uh, three, yeah, usually four to five people. It just depends on the, depends on the role and how many, how many different functions this job would, would interact with. And these would be typically people that they would work directly with, including yourself, if it was a direct hire. Correct. It would be the person's direct manager. And then, yeah, other other functions that this job would, would certainly interact with. Yeah, awesome. And uh, uh, that typically like two or three hour type of deal, including their presentation, or what does that look like? Yeah, usually we, we, we schedule them for two hours. We want to make sure that, you know, we have enough time. And even sometimes we'll take a little break, let somebody kind of get a deep breath, use the restroom, get some water. <laughs> um, and, and, we, and we the other thing we've learned over time is we actually try to make them pretty informal. Um, you know, typically, you know, it, it, one of the, you know, other than maybe getting on stage presenting for people, interviews are very nerve wracking. People come in sometimes and you can just see they're shaking. And so we, we try to create a very casual environment. We are a fairly informal uh, organization. Matter of fact, most of our employees are in kind of neat, uh, neat jeans and button down shirts uh, mo- most of the time. And so we, we all, we want somebody to kind of come in and actually show us how they really act so we can understand attitude, how they engage. So we try to make it pretty casual. And usually we schedule about two hours. The presentation is usually only about 10 or 15 minutes, but, uh, but we think it's an important to not try to rush people in and rush people out. Got it. Well, let's say, though, just hypothetically, if you had about five minutes to interview someone, what would be the question you'd want to ask them? Um, so I think a, a, a bit depending on the, on the level, there's two things for leadership roles that I always ask that are maybe a little bit different, or a little bit unique. 
One is, um, and matter of fact, I had interviews this morning and I, I just, uh, just asked the same question. One is, I always say if you're going to go in, especially if you're managing a large team and, and you're introduced in this role and you walk into the room and your new team's there and you got five minutes to kick off to talk about you or what you're, like, how do you interact and how do you introduce yourself to your team? And I literally say, actually pretend we're your team and, and stand up and, and give us the introduction. And, and for me, it's interesting. One is you can kind of see how quick you can think in your feet. But two is you get a real sense quickly of leadership style and capabilities, right? Do they talk more about the company? Do they talk about them as people? Do they tell you more about their, their personal lives? And I have kids and a wife or a husband. And, and so you really get an idea really quickly of what really matters most to them. And, and, and I, I've been doing it for probably 10 years and it throws people off a little bit, but, um, <laughs> but I got to tell you, you really do learn a lot. And that would be one. The other one I always ask too is, you know, finding different ways, you know, to creatively talk about strengths and weaknesses. But one of the things I try to focus on around leadership is, again, interacting on, on leadership styles. So a couple of things I always ask are, if I were to take your team in a, in a boardroom and have a beer with them or at a bar and have a beer with them casually, what would they say about you? What would they say about you is, you know, the thing that you need to work on? What are your biggest development opportunities? And I also ask the same question, what would your boss, you know, kind of say? So you get a bit of a 360 approach of, hey, your team would say this and your boss would say that. And you also try to see if there's consistencies in the answers between how their team perceives them and, and how their manager or boss perceives them. And I think, you know, you get a little bit, you know, some people, you know, kind of cop out on it a little bit and say, well, I work too hard, but I also don't let them do that either. I call them out sometimes and say, wait a minute, you can't say you work too hard. That, that doesn't count, <laughs> right? You gotta, you gotta kind of, but I find by probing and for me, I'm not even, I don't really care about the answer. What I care about is the level of transparency. Are they being honest? And some people will tell you things that you're like, wow, I have people in our panel saying, I would have never said that in an interview. And my takeaway is, I love that they said it. It shows they're self-aware, right? And self-awareness is huge. And, you know, they're honest. And for me, I'll take that over, you know, somebody kind of coming up with a fake made up answer uh, any day of the week. You got right? You got it. Exactly yeah. right. Does anyone ever say in that first question, I would ask them questions, right? And kind of engage in that way. Do you ever get that? That was kind of the first thing that came to my mind. <laughs> I do get it. And for me, that's an, that's an amazing answer, right? That's a, per that's a perfect answer is, I, and some people say, well, I, I want to know about you. Yeah. And some people <laughs> yeah, say, you yeah. know what? I wouldn't stand up. I'd sit down and I'd put them around a table where we can actually have eye contact and interact. And yeah, you get a lot of really interesting answers. Chris, that's a terrific question. Well, listen, you've been very generous and we're almost out of time, but we do have one last question we ask everyone. And that's kind of a, you know, career and life advice question. You know, what would you say to someone who maybe is, is an entrepreneur, maybe sees someday creating their own business or like you following the corporate class, you know, the corporate path, but wanting to find their way in the corner office, what, what kind of career and life advice would you give someone that maybe is early in their career, fresh out of college, or perhaps even at the middle management level and, you know, want to be a CEO someday? Yeah. You know, it's a great question. And, and, and one is I'll, I'll start off by saying, you know, I'm not sure, uh, you know, I'm not sure I, I'm, you know, I'm in a position to ever give really full career life, uh, career and life advice. <laughs> You're being advice. humble. You're being But it's true, right? Because so many people have come, come, come through organizations in such different ways. The only thing I can tell you that's just worked for me personally is find something you love to do. And I, I, would, I would stress this so much. I mean, I have... I'm so passionate about the business I'm in, the industry I'm in. I, you know, Brent, I'm not sure I'd be successful in almost any other industry. I just, I love it so much. 
and, and I love the people part of, 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 of the business environment. I think if you can find something that motivates you, that you're passionate, I always say to people, if you can find up, you know, wake up every morning and be excited about what you do. And listen, we all have bad days. Certainly I've had lots of bad days over my career, but at the end of the day, if you love what you do, you surround yourself with great people and you're passionate, you know, there's nothing more that you could want, I think, in, in, in being satisfied in your career. And it doesn't necessarily matter what, what, what your title is or what level you get to. If you love what you do, you're always going to excel. And, and, and the converse to that is, you know, especially early in your career, Put the financial stuff aside, and it's really, really hard to do because you know, growing up as I did, and as a lot of people do, you all, you know, you're thinking, how can I afford a house? How can I afford tuition? And they're all really important, important issues. And I think early in your career, especially, take time to really find something you love to do, and and I promise you, the money and the financial side will come because you're going to be really successful and really good at it. Yeah, no, that's good counsel, and I, you know, I do a lot of consulting for. Uh, you know, guys that are CEOs like yourself, whose kids will not listen to them, right? And they'll <laughs> say, right. Brent, can you talk to this you know, <laughs> son of mine? And, you know, I tell them, frankly, go out and do some things you don't like. Go go experiment. Find out what you don't that's want. Right. That's probably one of the most important things when you're younger. And, you know, you also said something that's so true of, frankly, so many of our CEOs and how important passion is. And, you know, I think it was Mark Twain that said, you know, find a job you love and you never work a day in your life. That's and, exactly right. You know, that, that level of passion, that level of interest certainly comes through in uh, you telling us your story today. So, Chris Stefanski, thanks again. Uh, really appreciate your time and, and uh, thank you for spending with us here today. Great, Brant. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.go4roi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.